Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I am Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, we're going to have episode 20 of our Planet Earth series, which tonight will recall the achievements of the Landsat program and looks forward to Tuesday morning's launch of Landsat 9. And we'll also hear from the heads of some of the space agencies about what they are doing to monitor our planet Earth. But first up, we have Space Show News. Last Thursday afternoon, an attempt was made to launch the Taiwanese Harpeth-1 rocket from Southern Launch's launch complex at Whaler's Way. Whaler's Way is on South Australia's Air Peninsula. During ignition, the launch vehicle suffered an internal fault causing the vehicle to catch a light. The fire was contained to the launch pad and was attended by the South Australian Country Fire Service, who were on site. Southern Launch says no people or the environment were put at risk. Now, this was to have been the maiden test flight of the Harpeth-1 rocket. The two-stage rocket has a mass of three tonnes and stands 10 metres tall. This vehicle is intended for suborbital missions above the Earth's atmosphere. Now, up in Queensland, a company called Black Sky Aerospace is building sounding rockets. Now, sounding rockets are, like the Taiwanese Hypath 1, designed to go straight up into the upper atmosphere or into near-Earth space and then fall back to Earth. On Saturday, Black Sky intended to launch a rocket from Gundiwindi, which is in southern Queensland. Now, this rocket was no space vehicle. It was intended to only rise to 10.6 kilometres. And that's the cruising altitude of airliners. However, strong winds caused a postponement to Sunday. <laughs> well, it was Gundiwindi, so <laughs> what could, they shouldn't have been surprised. However, on Sunday, the launch was cancelled when unspecified technical issues developed. Another attempt is expected in the coming weeks. Meanwhile, another Queensland company, Gilmore Space, has made further progress in developing an orbital rocket with a 10-second firing of its hybrid engine mounted on a test stand. The La Palma Observatory is so far not affected by the volcanic eruption on the island of La Palma, but does have an excellent view of it. The volcano is a shield type with a summit of 2,426 metres above sea level. It is in the Spanish Canary Islands and last erupted in 1971. Likewise, the Swedish Solar Telescope on the northern part of La Palma is safe but can see the eruption. The staff have posted some spectacular pictures of the erupting Combre Vieja on the internet. There is a live cam feed from one of the observatories available on YouTube. 100 kilometres away, the shine of the glowing lava and its smoke can be seen from the TID observatory on Tenerife. And uh, the smoke is lit at night by the full moon, which is, uh, you know, it's not quite full tonight, but um, it's uh, pretty close to it. Now, during last week's The Space Show, there were 10 people orbiting our planet. They were seven aboard the International Space Station and three aboard the Tiangong Space Station. Then, for one glorious day on Thursday going into Friday, there were, for the first time ever, 14 people in space, 
Yes, never before in history has there been 14 people in space. The previous record was 13. Now, launched on September 16, were the four crew members of the Inspiration4 mission aboard the Crew Dragon spaceship, which is called Resilience. The crew of the Jinsu-12 left Tiangong and landed in China on September the 17, having spent 92 days in space, a record for China. Then, on September 18, the four aboard Inspiration 4 deorbited and splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Florida. By all accounts, the four private United States citizens had a jolly good time in orbit. They even got to use a loo with a view. I'll leave you to research what that means. One thing they took with them was a mobile telephone which they used to play a new song by the Kings of Leon. Here's a feature describing that. When we heard St. Jude was sending a song to be the first NFT in space, we knew we wanted to be involved. We're sending a live performance recording of our new single, Time in Disguise, into space, already minted as an NFT. The NFT will be loaded onto an iPhone 12, played by one of the crew members in outer space. That makes it the first music NFT in space. Time in Disguise kind of jumped out to us right away just because, oddly enough, there's a, a portion of the song while we were recording it that we named it Space Monkey just because it kind of had a trippy, spacey kind of vibe to it. You know, with the keyboards and stuff, it just feels kind of otherworldly. All the auction proceeds will go to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. This is the first time that we've had the opportunity to let our music do something for St. Jude's, and that's, uh, that's very important to us. It means a ton to us to be at the forefront of something so massive and to to have our song be part of that is incredibly meaningful to us and it's a huge honor Members of Kings of Leon explaining why Time in Disguise was played on Inspiration 4. And it's now available apparently as a non-fungible token, (laughs) whatever that means. Now, when I go flying, I am glued to the window watching the world go by. I definitely don't waste my time watching movies. I go to the cinema when I want to do that. Well, at least uh, when COVID's not on. So, I was astonished to see Chris Shembroski on the Inspiration4 mission watching a movie on a tablet computer during the descent from orbit. (laughs) I'll bite my tongue lest I say something that might offend those who do watch in-flight movies. Anyway... There are now seven astronauts circling the planet, all aboard the International Space Station. Meanwhile, Tiangong continues to orbit uninhabited, awaiting the Shenzhou-13 crew of three people next month. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless, calling calling home. Welcome to episode 20 of our Planet Earth series. And we're going to be looking tonight at Landsat. And uh, before that, the heads of many space agencies met recently in the United States and described what their agencies are doing with Earth observations. And we're going to hear from Lisa Campbell, the president of the Canadian Space Agency, Bill Nelson, the administrator of NASA, Walter Peltzer, the head of the German Space Agency, Gregorio Saccoccio, the president of the Italian Space Agency, and Vladimir Taftai, the head of the Space Agency of Ukraine. 
Ms. Lisa Campbell, President, Canada Space Agency. Satellite data, as colleagues have mentioned, has become a vital part of modern government operations. And in Canada, we rely on synthetic aperture radar data from the RadarSat Constellation Mission satellites daily. The data collected by satellites is becoming the raw material for our digital age. When combined with artificial intelligence and powerful computing, space data unlocks the potential for a multitude of cutting-edge applications to meet global challenges. One example, as uh, was said earlier, is in the area of forest fire management. The CSA is developing Wildfire Sat, a new satellite that will help us provide more precise data on wildfires to first responders. Senator Bill Nelson, Administrator, National Aeronautics and Space Administration. We are researching into almost every field. Climate change is something that we are very serious about. Dr. Walter Pelzer, head of the German Space Agency. To have ESA doing this international projects and also doing with the European Union projects like Copernicus, which are on top level for, Europe, um, for, for Germany, due to the fact that, and now I'm coming back to what you mentioned already, and also Schreck mentioned already, as observation, climate change is top priority. And, um, Chirac mentioned he wants to make sure that people who work in space have a value for, on, on Earth. The German strategy, the German space strategy stated clearly, we do space to improve life on Earth. This is our statement in our strategy. And this is what we put into practice in the past. And this is what we want to put into practice also in the future. Even if we will have a new government, I'm positive that this will be a red line within the way how Germany is going to do space. So our main priorities are Earth observation, tackling climate change, um, to do, especially in the area of Earth observation. We have great pro uh, projects like, like Grace with JPL that we improve and increase our, our um, projects, our budget to increase actually methods knowledge to tackle the, from our point, one of the most important issues, climate change. Um, to make that happen, and to make that happen also in the future, and when it comes to projects, I, I have to mention Earth Observation Copernicus, that um, we as a team, together with, with our stakeholders and partners in industry, were successful in setting up in, in quick time together with our partners in, in ESA uh, six missions which were decided in the last ministerial so that they are up and running and um, Germany got a big, big share over there and this is something we are proud of because it's absolutely in line with our strategy. Thank, Thank you. you. Mr. Gregorio Sacoccia, President of the Italian Space Agency. Space is a priority, it's a strong priority for the Italian government at the moment. It's very high in the agenda of, uh, of the Italian government in terms of uh, what space does and can do and will do in the future for uh, our society. And it is not by chance that uh, um, there are more and more uh, resources, financial resources, but not only financial resources that are invested in Italy in the space sector. And why is this? Of course, if we look more into the detail of what we've been for priorities, um, um, clearly um, Earth observation, Earth science, is uh, one of the areas where we have, uh, um, we have uh, demonstrated uh, quite a strong capability to, to innovate and contribute to new missions. We do this, as usual, through our participation to these uh, missions. I think we are one of the main and uh, uh, more, I would say, um, uh, proactive contributors to the Copernicus mission that we produce, um, we developed through ESA. But we also have a very important national development like the Cosmos SkyMed um, uh, constellation, synthetic aperture radar constellation. We'll launch in a few weeks um, the second satellite of the second generation. And I think something which is nice to, yeah, to highlight is the fact that those satellites are actually dual-use satellites. In a moment like this, where there is so much exchange between civil and military sector, we have quite a good experience to, to present on that. 
and Volodymyr Taftay, head of the uh, Space Agency of Ukraine. Climate changes and ecological uh, problems, water, uh, other resources huge, uh, uses, usage, and definitely fire fighting uh, will also have you know, this uh, issue in Ukraine. So I would say that for the uh, space program, our key words are practical, pragmatic, and is most economically efficient. But uh, in, in, in these uh, terms, we plan to create our uh, satellite constellation uh, for Earth observation. And by the way, by the end of this year, we plan to launch our first uh, satellite, SISH-230. Now, I don't suppose that too many of you read the journal Nature, although you may often read reports about what's in Nature. Well, the Australian newspaper on Thursday last week uh, had an article headlined Catastrophic Bushfires, quote, Caused an Explosion in Ocean Life, end of quote. And it said that the carbon dioxide bloom was equivalent to turning the Sahara green. And it refers to the 2019 to 2020 bushfires in Australia. And it said that the smoke, when it fell down into the ocean, caused a resurgence of life there, a bloom of algae, not the bad algae, but the good algae, and uh, that drew down heaps and heaps of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So uh, it says that an equivalent amount of carbon dioxide was sucked up by the photoplankton bloom in the ocean between New Zealand and South America, caused by fertilization of the ocean by smoke from the fires. It pointed out that although the bushfires had caused catastrophic damage on land, killing billions of creatures, the photoplankton bloom had a positive impact at sea. And part of the bloom would have sunk to the ocean floor, locking in carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. In addition, as a critical building block in the aquatic food chain, the phytoplankton would have been eaten by other species, storing the carbon and dramatically increasing ocean productivity. 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. This is planet Earth. You're looking at planet Earth. Ba, 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 ba. 21 organizations from across Australia and the United States have found that a series of satellites fitted with hyperspectral sensors could become a key component in Australia's space capabilities. The study was conducted by the University of New South Wales in Canberra. It examined the feasibility of a satellite mission called Satellite Cross-Calibration Radiometer. Geoscience Australia, the Australian Space Agency and CSIRO were among those involved as well as the United States' Geological Survey. Australian measurements by hyperspectral sensors would aim to improve the data quality provided by optical Earth observation satellites through cross-calibration. This would include the Landsat satellites, which are operated by the Geological Survey. Other satellites to benefit would include the constellations of commercial remote sensing satellites now being built. Applications to benefit would be climate science, disaster management, water resources monitoring, agriculture and land use. 
Although Australia is one of the largest users of Earth observation data in the world, it mainly relies on data from foreign governments and private companies. The director of the University of New South Wales' space section, Russell Boyce, says there is a need for Australia to develop its own Earth observations capabilities. Planet Earth is blue. And uh, tonight we're going to be looking at the Landsat series ahead of the launch of a new Landsat satellite. So let's have a review of the Landsat series. And this uh, review is uh, prepared for us by the Goddard Spaceflight Center. From 438 miles above Earth's surface, the newest Landsat satellite will collect data so detailed it can detect both natural and human-caused changes to the landscape. But what really makes Landsat unique is the half-century of data, an unbroken chain of observations over five decades. Let's take a look at how we got here. 1966, the U.S. Geological Survey proposes a satellite to study Earth's landmasses. But what would that look like? Over the next few years, USGS and NASA researched their options. 1970, NASA gets the green light to build an Earth Resources Technology Satellite, an experiment to study and monitor our planet's land surface from space. Launched in 72, this was the first digital data of Earth, repeated at regular intervals with geometric fidelity to allow comparison between observations. This changed how we drew maps, tabulated agricultural production, and assessed damage after disasters. In 1975, NASA launched a second satellite, similar to the first. Now they were collecting twice as much data. With Landsat 3 replacing the aging original in 78, focus shifted to the advanced technology planned for the 80s. The thematic mapper instrument, launched on Landsat 4 in 1982 and on its twin Landsat 5 in 84, was a major step forward. Collecting seven different wavelengths at better ground resolution, and with higher precision, this was the beating heart of the satellite and became the workhorse for a generation of scientists. For the first time, Landsat data had three visible bands, red, green, and blue, allowing natural color composite images. With the addition of shortwave infrared wavelengths, the data could better highlight flooded areas, mineral deposits, and burn scars from wildfires. The thermal bands were also upgraded, allowing individual farm fields to be tracked. The sixth Landsat was intended to be another big step forward, but it never reached orbit after launch in 1993. Plans immediately began for Landsat 7, which would carry an even more improved sensor. At the time, the Enhanced Thematic Mapper Plus was the most stable Earth observation instrument ever sent into orbit, and the calibration could be updated while in space. For the first time, we had an instrument robust enough to collect lots of data, and we had a plan to thoroughly record the entire globe. Landsat 7 was put to work mapping coral reefs, and even produced the first high-resolution natural color map of remote Antarctica. Improvements to the thermal bands on Landsat 7 allowed states and counties to gauge how much water was used by crops. This helps them manage water resources efficiently. An important milestone occurred in 2008, when the USGS made the data available to download for free. Users were able to get the data they needed, and not just what they could afford. It really unlocked a ton of innovation and created about $2 billion a year in economic benefits. The modern era of Landsat observations began with the launch of Landsat 8 in 2013. Having a push-broom-style sensor on Landsat 8 was a big improvement over the older scanning sensor. The Landsat 8 ground system that USGS runs is capable of receiving a lot more data than before. We're downloading over 725 scenes each day. That just wasn't remotely possible until Landsat 8. The two European Sentinel-2 satellites were designed to mesh with Landsat so that users can treat data from all the satellites as if it came from one single source. Now we get observations every two or three days, instead of every two weeks. 
2021 is the launch of Landsat 9, the next step forward. It will collect the best data ever recorded by a Landsat satellite, while still integrating seamlessly with the extensive archive. Since the early 1970s, Landsat satellites have allowed us to better manage our resources. Landsat data has enabled countless innovations and will let us track the effects of climate change into the future. And Landsat 9 is due to be launched on Tuesday. Yes, Tuesday. Ahead of the launch, there's going to be a science briefing on Friday morning at 3 a.m. if you want to get up for that. Uh, that's Friday, September the 25th. And there'll be a pre-launch press briefing at 6 a.m. on Sunday, September the 26th. And when is the actual launch? Well, that will be at 4.11 a.m. on Tuesday, September the 28th. So that's Landsat 9. Way back in the 1980s, you could uh, pop into Suncorp in Queensland and uh, buy photographic maps of Queensland, including the uh, Great Barrier Reef, that um, were on public sale, made by Landsat. Also, uh, I have in my position a map of the whole of Victoria taken from Landsat photographs. And uh, I do remember that National Geographic, um, not long after Landsat 1 went into orbit, published a whole map of the United States taken from Landsat photographs. So let's hear a bit more about Landsat 9 and what it is going to be doing. Soaring high above our home planet, Landsat 9 will provide critical data on how Earth is changing. Circling the globe every 99 minutes, 14 orbits a day, continuing decades of observations. The impact of the Landsat record is the sheer amount of information we've collected all across the world since 1972. And it is high quality science caliber data, enabling us to accurately track changes over time. Now, 50 years of Las Vegas expanding may be fairly simple to notice, but we can also observe short-term changes, like the growth of farm crops through a season in south-central Kansas. With more than one Landsat satellite in orbit, plus the European Sentinel-2 satellites, we will get data several times each week, improving our ability to track crop health and more. The temperature measurements from Landsat 9 will be used to calculate how much water was used by each farm field. The Central Platte Natural Resources District, like many throughout the western United States, relies on Landsat data to manage irrigation and increase water efficiency. Landsat 9 will also improve monitoring of coastal waters. The increased precision in data sent back from Landsat 9 will allow finer distinctions in the levels of light reflected from water, making it easier to identify any pollutants that are present. Around the globe, growing population and expanding development result in higher amounts of runoff, damaging sensitive nearshore ecosystems. Landsat's long history lets us look into the past to see the effects of land use changes. The consequences of climate change can also be seen in Landsat's long data record. Scientists have used Landsat to track shrinking glaciers for decades, and Landsat 9 will continue that effort. The glaciers in the Himalayas are a key water source for billions of people in South Asia. Due to global warming, the increased meltwater collects in large lakes at high altitudes and poses a flooding risk to downstream villages. Landsat data is essential to monitor the growth of these lakes. Because of their location, glaciers are not easy to study in person, but Landsat's view from space allows us to study glaciers all around the globe. Landsat 9's improvements will make it easier to see features on the glacier surface. With that, we can better track how fast the glacier is moving. Knowing the velocity of the ice now and how it has changed over the past decades helps us forecast likely contributions to rising sea levels in a changing climate. 
Landsat 9 joins Landsat 8 to continue the unbroken string of Landsat data. For five decades, we have relied on Landsat's high-caliber, science-quality observations to understand and protect our home planet. And while Landsat 9 begins sending back data, we are already planning for the next evolution in the Landsat program. At the Goddard Space Flight Center, Mark Evan Jackson has prepared this history of Landsat, and um, <clears throat> it's made of a number of episodes. In this one, episode one, he explains the origins of Landsat. The blue marble. That was our first view of ourselves. We really are the blue planet. We're hanging out here in the middle of nowhere. In fact, Apollo imagery was part of the justification for putting together a satellite that would look at the Earth. That satellite was the first Landsat. The Landsat mission now holds the title for the longest continuous space-based record of Earth's land in existence. At least one Landsat satellite has been orbiting the Earth since 1972. That's nearly 50 years of steadfast observation. The program was born in the midst of several historical flashpoints during a time when the world was changing quickly. Well, it really was a perfect storm. We had a lot of technology coming out of World War II with air-flown sensors. We also had an awareness of the environment between Rachel Carson. Even Stuart Udall wrote a book called The Quiet Crisis. Those two things together, the space race, all of those came together. But the Landsat story doesn't actually start with NASA. It starts with the United States Geological Survey. There were a couple of really interesting players. The primary one is William T. Pecora, and he was director of the U.S. Geological Survey. His boss was Stuart Udall. He tried floating it around, and it didn't quite make it. Department of Defense, the CIA, NASA, which was just beginning at that point, they all said, nah, you know, this isn't the right time. So in 1966, Pakora and Udall announced that, okay, fine, Department of Interior will, will launch. And so that caused a big kerfuffle. And, and the bottom line was that NASA was forced to step up and say, yeah, okay, we'll do it. But let's pause for a second. Obviously, there was a big push to make an Earth-observing satellite. But what exactly did it need to do? Landsat's entire job is to collect light, visible light like this, and non-visible light like this. After Landsat captures the light it sees, it can make two kinds of pictures, true color images and false color images. Did you know your eyes can only detect red, green, and blue? It sounds crazy, but it's true. In fact, if you took a magnifying glass to the screen you're probably looking at right now, you'd see a jumble of red, green, and blue dots. Mix those colors together with different intensities, and your brain interprets all the colors of the rainbow. True color images are made by combining red, blue, and green light. But what's even more amazing? Landsat also captures infrared light beyond what we can see. And that light can reveal some incredible things when you look at a false color image. Like the difference between types of plants, how healthy those plants are, healthy coral reefs and even dead coral reefs, fire tracking, ocean pollution, the possibilities are nearly endless. In fact, I bet you've probably seen Landsat's influence on pop culture without even knowing it from Google Earth and works of art, to television and movies. And I should know, before my untimely smushing by an 85-foot-tall great ape deep into the film, I, your narrator, played Landsat Steve in Kong Skull Island. But I digress. Now, back to our story. NASA and USGS get to work, largely under the direction of lead engineer Virginia Norwood, who was often called the mother of Landsat. Norwood and her team had to design an experimental instrument, the multispectral scanner, that had never been flown in space before. We took a, uh, and NASA took a real gamble to propose a scanner for this, met with quite a bit of skepticism. To assuage the skeptics and test the scanner's capabilities, the team loaded up the test model on a truck and headed to Yosemite. And this was because nobody believes that scanner will work. I think you better 
better give us some assurance. The true test came when Landsat 1 launched on July 23, 1972. Sadly, William T. Pecora, one of the project's original champions, died just three days before Landsat took its place in orbit. But with this launch, the United States, and soon the world, would step into a new paradigm of Earth observation. Never-before-seen snapshot of land resources in the environment would be key for critical decision-making decades into the future. It's uh, impossible to predict really the exact lifetime of one of these birds. But we hope that the, the spacecraft can go on perhaps for another year, perhaps another two years, bringing down the data as it has been doing. We'll have more about Landsat in a few minutes' time. But now, please get your diary handy, because we have several entries for it. 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. You're listening to The Space Show, which is presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Uh, we're a non-profit, non-political group of space enthusiasts and uh, we're keen to learn about and share with people like yourself the excitement of space exploration. Now, I'm going to give you a URL, internet address, in a few moments. So, uh, as I said, have your diary handy. Now, in addition to presenting this radio program, we also host public meetings. Now, these are free, F-R-E-E, -E, no charge. But uh, this month's meeting of the Space Association of Australia will be an online event. Uh, the reasons for that will be obvious. It will be held on Monday, this coming Monday. Now, Matt Ryle will give a report on last week's Australian Space Forum that was held in Adelaide. And then Simon Barraclough of Melbourne University will describe his SPIRIT satellite. Now, SPIRIT is an acronym for Space Industry Responsive Intelligent Thermal. And uh, this satellite will break new ground in high-performance autonomous operations, communications, propulsion, and thermal management. Notably, it will be the first Australian-built satellite to host a foreign space agency payload. And then one of the Space Association members will give a review of the Inspiration4 orbital space mission. And there will also be an update on Australian and overseas space news. All that crowded into a two-hour meeting. So, this online Space Association meeting will take place on Monday, September the 27th, between 7.30 and 9.30 p.m. Now, to participate, you'll need to register with Zoom software or you can stream anonymously on YouTube. Alternately, you can watch later on the Space Association's YouTube channel. Now, for details on how to register for Zoom or the link to YouTube, visit the Space Association's website, which is at space.asn.au. So, space.asn.au for that meeting on Monday between 7.30 and 9.30 p.m. And uh, oh, speaking of uh, the Space Show and the Space Association, the, uh, the Space Show has a home on the internet. Now this is space.southernfm.com.au So for the Space Show, space.southernfm.com.au And, well, there's more than 1,800 features for your enjoyment. A few photographs as well as that. So space.southernfm.com.au for more about the Space Show. 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless. 
And now on the space show, we continue our Planet Earth series. And uh, we're going to have episode two now of Mark Evan Jackson's Landsat Legacy series, courtesy of the Goddard Space Flight Center. And uh, this one focuses, focuses on designing for the future. Absolutely. I think as a uh, native Nevadan, we're aware of the value of water. This is Matt Bromley. Understanding water scarcity? That's his second nature. He's one of the key players tracking water usage in Nevada and the western United States from space. Um, everything from public service commercials telling you to turn off your faucet while you're brushing your teeth to knowing which days you're allowed to water your lawn based off of whether or not you have an odd or an even uh, address. There's years where the water in the river is very, very low, and then there's years where it's really plentiful. And so we're really tied into that variability from year to year. For a state like Nevada, somewhere between 70 and 80% of the water in the state is used for agriculture. And so if we can do better with managing irrigation water, agricultural water, uh, it goes a long way with water conservation. The Landsat program has had its eyes in the sky for almost 50 years. Remember how USGS and NASA teamed up, made a revolutionary satellite and launched into space? Yeah, that was great. The point is, Landsat's success is due in large part to its forward-thinking tech. Each new generation produces better and better measurements, and you can't conserve what you can't measure. Yeah, just in agriculture, the ability to look at the consumption of water, the, the economic value of, the, uh, of Landsat to agriculture alone is several times the cost, or a few times the cost of the entire system, and that's pretty significant. That's Phil Dabney. Self-proclaimed dinosaur, Phil has worked for Landsat since Landsat 7 back in the 90s. It's always been about the detector. I had a bumper sticker that people teased me that only uh, the nerds at NASA would understand, and that was, it's the detector, stupid. And that's been our limitation. The detector that Phil is talking about is basically the most important piece of technology on the entire satellite. It's where light gets turned into data. In the early days, the detector was made out of just silicon, the same material you'd find in your smartphone camera today. Technological limitations prevented Landsat from seeing anything too far beyond the visible light spectrum. Fast forward to today, when our detectors span infrared frequencies. Landsat 8's thermal sensor is so sensitive, scientists can calculate Earth's temperatures down to a fraction of a degree. The addition of the thermal was a, a major addition, and then things came out of that like evapotranspiration the ability to estimate how much water the plants are taking out of the ground based on how well they can cool themselves by sweating, essentially. And that's been used a lot in agriculture, water management. This detector seems to be a pretty big deal, but what does it do? I'm so glad you asked. There are two instruments aboard Landsat 9, so that means there are different detectors. Let's start with OLI. When you're building hardware for spaceflight, you have to keep it in a clean room to protect it from any dust that might block light, and OLI is all about light. Once in orbit, OLI collects sunlight reflected off Earth's surface. The reflected light bounces between a few mirrors to focus the beam on a plane of detectors, all lined up in a row. The light passes through a set of filters to separate out nine specific wavelength bands, invisible and infrared frequencies. Each band provides different pieces of information about the land cover. The second instrument aboard Landsat 9, called TIRS, is a little different. It collects the thermal infrared wavelengths, or temperature signatures, emitted by the Earth itself. But to accurately calculate the temperature, the detector needs to be much colder than what it is measuring from Earth. So along with the lenses and detectors, TIRS carries a condenser that cools the detectors down to 43 Kelvin. That's minus 382 degrees Fahrenheit. To put it all together, let's go to an engineer. The spacecraft is not just you know, a piece of structure that holds this instrument. The spacecraft responsibility is provide the juice or information or power that the instrument needs in order to function. Melody's right. The detector may be the most important part of the spacecraft, but it's far from being the only tech on board. As the TIRS-2 deputy project manager and systems engineer by trade, she understands firsthand what kinds of life support systems are required to keep these two instruments operational. Picture this. 
The entire satellite stands about 15 feet tall and is the length of a school bus. Tiers 2 and OLI2 occupy about this much space. The rest is occupied by other critical systems that power the satellite, cool the instruments down, package the data, send it back to Earth, along with many other duties. And looking at the data and seeing the smile at the, from the scientists that they're getting the right data, and that, that by itself is great. Great experience. Yeah, so I don't know if you noticed, but I get kind of a smile when I start thinking of this Landsat data because it is very unique, it's very special, and it feels good to be a part of work like this. Yeah, it's being surrounded by people that can do, you know, failure is not an option, which is a famous NASA phrase. We can do that. We'll make it happen. <laughs> it's clear that Landsat Tech is delivering on its promise to provide game-changing data. Landsat 9 represents the best of what NASA has to offer. But what happens when your satellite works so well that keeping up with all the information it's sending back to Earth becomes its own monumental challenge? You're seeing before your eyes you know, how the environment, how forests change, how agriculture changes, urban expansion, the whole, the whole thing, and how the planet has changed over 50 years. And so it's, to me, it's that historical perspective that I find really fascinating. Now, Landsat 7 is nearing the end of its life. That's based on the fuel left aboard. It will cease to provide scientifically usable data later this year. Now, despite being in operation for nearly half a century, the scientific community continues to find innovative uses for the Landsat Image Archive. This includes large-scale ice velocity mapping for Antarctica. Another use is computer image analysis of global deforestation. Recently, scientists were able to make improved estimates of cropland water consumption via monitoring evapotranspiration. Now, Landsat 9, as we've noted already, is being ready for a planned launch on Tuesday morning. And uh, planning is underway for Landsat 10, which is expected to differ significantly from its predecessors. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless, calling, calling home. It was a Friday night even, and it was about 10 p.m., and I got a phone call because I'm on call. Basically, uh, the operator explained that the antenna stopped moving during setup. This is Mike O'Brien, recounting a call that every ground station engineer dreads. The antenna is down, and you have less than two hours to fix it before the satellite needs to make contact with it. Um, I drove to site. It was exactly what I thought it was at the time. There was a software problem. And the antenna drove itself into a limit. When it does that, it kills power to the antenna, and it has to be manually manipulated to move out of that area. So I, you know, put the harness on, you know, got into the lift, went up to the axis. Um, you have to open that uh, housing doors, which is no big deal. And then you crank the hand crank, which physically moves the antenna and it moved it out of that limit area. Um, I had about 12 minutes left before the next pass started. Let's take a step back to explain why, apart from strapping yourself to a lift 30 feet in the air, this is a stressful situation. A Landsat satellite orbits the Earth every 99 minutes, furiously collecting images of everything below it with each pass. Much like the storage on your phone quickly decreases as your pictures of cute dogs increase, Landsat storage is also limited, which is why the satellite makes contact with the ground station every few hours to offload its data. But what if the ground station is down? Well, in that case, Landsat's internal hard drive fills up and doesn't capture the next round of images. Critical data is lost. Luckily, that is extremely rare, and data is hardly ever lost, especially with a workflow like this. So every time a Landsat 8 image comes in, I record it on four independent different pieces of equipment. That way, if there's a failure, I still have three other great copies. 
We couldn't really tell the story of data without mentioning Landsat's data renaissance, when a landmark decision changed Earth science forever. In 1990, Landsat data cost as much as $4,000 per scene. Usually, scientists require several of these scenes to do their research. As you can imagine, the cost was a major obstacle. In 2008, Landsat took down its paywall. I recall having one of our international cooperator meetings. A woman from Russia was there, and she gave a briefing that really highlighted the importance of free data basically saying how it was democratizing for countries like hers, where suddenly you had an open source of information where, where anybody could get access and see what was going on on the face of the earth. Christy Klein manages the entire Landsat data archive, nearly 50 years of it. She knows firsthand how hungry the science community is for Landsat products. The first year scenes were available for free, downloads jumped exponentially. In 2008, we had over a million downloads. And today, we typically get 15 to 20 million each year. Which brings us to our next segment. Look at these. Stunning, right? Wrong. I mean, well, yes, they are gorgeous, but they are also a consistent record of change over time. At its most basic level, it's easy to see how Earth has changed since Landsat 1 launched in 1972. Just look at an early image and then compare it to a current one. Maybe it's changed a lot, maybe a little, but that's about all you can say. Landsat provides more than just pictures, though. From space, it sends back verified scientific data in multiple wavelengths. With Landsat, we can quantify exactly how much each 30 meter by 30 meter pixel has changed. And with the full Landsat archive available at no cost, you can track the complete progression of each pixel throughout the season. And you can do that for millions of pixels at a time. Has a piece of land changed from wetlands to suburban housing? Did forests become farmland? Or, looking closer, have these pixels of forest become stressed due to insect damage? Are those pixels of farm fields suffering from drought? With carefully calibrated Landsat data, it is possible to answer these questions for the whole globe. You know, it's a slice of human history. It's amazing how well, for this 50 years, we're documenting every change on the planet. This is Jeff Masek, Landsat 9 project scientist. My, my thing has always been history. My academic training is actually in geology, but the thing that I sort of loved about geology was still that kind of long time, right? It's, it's being able to like stand in a spot and say that, you know, there was a, an ocean here 50 million years ago and I can look at the fossils that are, that are indicated for that. The thing that got me into the Landsat record was still that historical perspective. You know, it's not 50 million years, it's 50 years, but still you're seeing before your eyes, you know, how the environment, how forests change, how agriculture changes, urban expansion, the whole, the whole thing. We're out of time here now on the Space Show, so we'll see you next week, 7 o'clock.